Listening Dog Media. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Offside Rule We Get It is brought to you by Continental Tyres. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Offside Rule We Get It, supported by Continental Tyres, getting you to the game safely. We're in esteemed company today. Myself, Kate Borsay and Lindsay Hooper sat in a very snugly studio in the back of a building in SE1 with Sarah Shepherd, features editor of Sport Magazine. And most importantly, the reason why we've dragged you into the podcast today, Sarah, you've written a book called Kicking Off How Women in Sport Are Changing the Game. Congratulations on the book and um, thank you for coming on. Thanks very much for having me, guys pleasure. We're going to hopefully hear some nuggets from Sarah a little bit later on. I'm going to delve a little bit further into some of her interviews. Was there anything that was taken out of the book? That's a good question I like to ask authors. What weren't you allowed to get through and can we get away with saying it now? So stick around later on and we'll find out um, if she'll reveal anything. Uh, We've also got a great selection of topics coming up on the show as well. First of all, Lindsay, let's find out how you are. Hello. um, I've, I've really been enjoying your book as well, Sarah. It's great really liking the read I'm not quite that I was hoping I would come to this record being able to say I've finished the book we can talk all about it as is always the case with me it's the same with the Richard Branson book you loan me <laughs> about five years ago yeah. by the way I get sort of three quarters of the way through and then I just stop and I've done it with another book I need to just get them all finished but um, this is going to be my next one so thank you very much for giving us a copy it was very kind of you and I'm, I'm enjoying the read and it's interesting I'll ask you to expand on a couple of things um, certainly the chapter that you wrote with Kelly Smith as well. Interesting to see how you feel things are moving forwards um, and whether they are or aren't, and we'll talk about that in a footballing capacity, I guess. What's the response been to the book? Really, really positive, actually, which is great. I mean, it's always hard to tell when you're the author because people only tend to say nice things to you. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, from, from what I've seen and I've read, it, it's been really good, and I, I've been really taken aback by how many people want to talk about the subject, really, which is, is great. What made you want to write it, just quickly before we go into our topics today, what was the key driver behind you writing it? Because, of course, it is a popular topic. It's a topic that I know people write lots of dissertations, papers, articles about. But what made you do it? What made you put it in print form? Well, I suppose the fact that, like you say, so many people have written things and talked about it. And being a sport magazine, I've seen a lot of changes over the years. And I kind of wanted to sit back and go, right, well, where are we? You know, where are things? You, you read so much conflicting stuff. It's It's like... You know, are we in a good place? Are we in a bad place? And I wasn't even sure, you know, which is why I wanted to write the book. There's also a strong behind-the-scenes element as well, of course, because of your experience in the industry. And not always do people talk out as you have done. It's quite interesting how you reveal a few things. But we'll talk about that more later. First of all, what's coming up on the show? Well, we've got some tears coming up on the show. What has Claudia Ranieri crying? Well, crying tears of emotions and emotions bubbling over, I suppose, uh, leads us to one of our topics today, sniffles and sobs. Uh, So I'd like other examples, please, of when the big men in football start to ball. Yes. Uh, We also are going to look at mental toughness as well. Rafa Benitez coming out last week and saying, look, my players have got a real mental block with away games. That's quite a strong line from Rafa. And if there's any way of reinforcing a mental issue, it is to tell the world that your players have a mental issue or is there a bit of reverse psychology in there regardless of that we're going to come up with some suggestions good bad ridiculous for Rafa Benitez about how they might shake that away game hex can it make any difference for them before the end of the season hi I'm Paul Merson and you're listening to the Offside Rule podcast 
But let's start, first of all, with Dreamland. There's only one team that we can attribute with this, and it's been so widely reported, hasn't it? We know, of course, Leicester. Five games to go. They sit currently seven points at the top of the Premier League. They're in Dreamland. No one ever expected it. We know that, but we want to have a look at some other teams that have had huge success in a most unexpected way. So, Sarah, Lindsay, I'm going to ask you to look across the English leagues, uh, around Europe, perhaps the women's game as well, and come up with some other examples of teams who found themselves in dreamland within the last 20 years. Sarah, I'll start with you. OK, well, well mine's fairly recent ones. Um, so if you look at the French league, in the summer of 2011, Paris Saint-Germain just been taken over by the Qataris. You know, they'd spent £82 million, bought in Ancelotti, Everyone really thought they were going to walk the league. And then Montpellier happened <laughs> and Olivier Giroud happened and Montpellier won their first ever league title, um, which was you know, astonishing to most people. I mean, it wasn't perhaps the same story as Leicester in that they hadn't nearly been relegated the season before, but all the same, it was completely unexpected. And then the other one for me actually comes from the women's game, which was Liverpool ladies. Uh, looking back to 2013 in, in the FAWSL, the Women's Super League, They'd finished bottom mm. uh, for two seasons running. And then in 2013, they won it, you know, which ended a remarkable run of Arsenal's. <laughs> They'd won it for nine seasons in a <laughs> row, I think. So for Liverpool, a club that had, had, you know, been rock bottom, been awful, only hadn't been relegated because relegation didn't exist in, in the WSL at that point, to then usurp Arsenal is just quite astonishing, really. And to win it for another year after that as well. So they actually held on to their titles so that it wasn't just a fly-by-night. I'm going to take you back to the early 90s now. Both of my stories stem from around that period. And I'm going to set the scene in Syria when any player who was anyone who wanted to show off, to play with the best, to almost be attracted to the Hollywood of football was playing in Syria. All the best players were there. Huge backdrop going on with the dominance um, of Milan, who'd won the Scudetto. They were inspired, of course, by Diego Maradona playing for them at the time. Inter, well, they boasted three of the best of the West German world champions, Lothar Matthias, Jürgen Klinsmann, Andreas Brehm as well, and Juventus, newly boosted by Roberto Baggio. So all that going on, you can imagine this was a super league at the time. It was a league where there were only three teams, as I've just mentioned, who were going to be likely to do it. But along came Sampdoria, 1990-91, to 91, one of football's greatest fairy tales. And I must say, there's a brilliant article on this by Amy Lawrence that was in uh, The Observer this Sunday, and she goes on to explain it in lots and lots of detail. But basically, um, it was against the backdrop of Verona having done it a few years previously, and this was a really young Sampdoria side. Roberto Mancini in there as well. Gianluca Viali was there. They just did what no one expected them to do, whether it was a weight of expectation on the other super teams, who knows, um, but they only lost three Serie A matches all season. Their coach, Boscov, known for his quirky humour and his father figure inspiration. And I wonder whether that's a running theme through some of our unexpected teams. Just to show how significant that is, that amount of success in Serie A 20 odd years ago, since then no one in Italy has replicated that without a title already on their honour. So they are the only team to have done that um, who hadn't previously won a title. So well done, Sampdoria. You can still continue to take a bow. Unexpected achievements. If I was to say to both of you, the longest unbeaten league run in European football, you can go across the European spectrum, 
what sort of teams would you shout back at me? I'm sure Barcelona would be in there. Well, kind of Arsenal did it in the Premier League for a while, didn't they? Yeah, they had a, the invincible season, went and beat them for quite a while. I don't know, maybe one of the Italian teams, uh, Juventus, one of the great sides. I can tell you Juventus were in there. At 49 games they went unbeaten and that was quite recent, 2011 um, from the May until November 2012 theirs. But the team that has the longest unbeaten run is an Eastern European team and there is a cloud of scrutiny and should we say, ooh, uh, suspicion. <laughs> Are you bigging up this team that's actually, it's basically an entirely dodgy affair? I think it might be slightly dodgy, Kate. Yeah, Star Bucharest went, get this, 104 games unbeaten. 104. So you look at Juventus, that was a great example, 49. You've got teams around that mark. These are way out in front, very unexpected. Was there anyone else playing in their league? <laughs> well, the dictator at the time was definitely on their side. I think that's how Red we flag. say it. <laughs> Red flag moments. He definitely gifted them with some of the best players that they could possibly have. He made it very one-sided in the country. Country. However, the reason why I've chosen them, and I didn't think it was a complete fix, is that they were tested at the European Cup. Now, that can't be fixed. He can do all he can to help in his own country, but he couldn't fix that. They actually became the first Eastern European team to lift the European Cup, beating Barcelona. That was in the 1986 final. They then reached the final again, but got beaten by Barcelona the next time. But this run that they were on... It actually convinced them they were invincibles. They were superior. And that's how they went and played. Um, it was fantastic to see when I look back on this. 1986 to 1989, you're talking the summers of those 104 games. The players that were in the team as well, there was no one I recognised particularly at all, <laughs> apart from maybe one world player. But that was it. Quite shocking, really, that they'll probably hold that record for a very long time. Unexpected. I'm glad that we've all cheated our way out of the 20-year guidance, by the way, set by Lindsay Hooper. I want the last 20 years. She rolls in with the, with the oldest run of the lot. Sarah and I just sneaking in with a couple of early 90s. So you picked out Liverpool ladies, Sarah, and I will bring in a women's football example as well. But I think you were spot on in terms of doing a Leicester. I think Liverpool ladies are the equivalent, like you say, bottom to top. It's that magical journey. But I think when you talk about unexpected and... You can't cater for a team when women's football's getting underway. A team like Arsenal Ladies getting 40 trophies, can you? Um, they won 40 majors in, in their time so far, and I'm sure there'll be more to come. Uh, two WSL titles, 12 FA Women's Premier League titles, which is what it was before the WSL, 13 FA Women's Cups, 10 Women's Premier League Cups, four WSL Continental Tyres Cups, uh, getting you to the game safely, nice little <laughs> nod there, and one UEFA Champions League. Crazy. I think it's been brilliant that they were the ones to catch and maybe the dream now is other people trying to emulate what they've done the female take on football now we're sat with sarah in a studio just beside the sport magazine offices tucked away and i wanted to find out from sport magazine's perspective or yours perspective sarah where do you think leicester have got it right what's their secret what's going on behind the scenes that you guys might have seen that perhaps we haven't obviously we see everything here at sport magazine <laughs> <laughs> I actually interviewed Frank Lampard just um, a few days ago about the league this year and how surprising it's been. He's obviously over in New York. And I got his views on, on Leicester's success and the problems at Chelsea this season. And in terms of Leicester, he really said he was surprised as, as the rest of us. He did talk about Ranieri, Claudio Ranieri, and his influence. He obviously had a huge influence on Frank's own career. And he, he mentioned his character, how he's great with the players. He gives them pizza when they win. Um, he said, you know, if you look at the players at Leicester, 
coming into this season, none of them, you know, not many were really near their international teams and now they're playing for their countries. You know, they've just really excelled themselves this season. And you have to look at Ranieri for that, I think, uh, in a huge part, because he's been the one major difference at the club. Has it also been quite strange for you when you're doing a lot of your footballing interviews, the fact that this season everyone's rooting for them? There's there's not this rivalry that you would have between the big four or big six clubs, but I'm guessing that you can speak to anyone from any team in the Premier League and they'll be saying, oh, we're an admirer of what Leicester have been doing. Maybe not quite so much with Arsenal because they, (laughs) they, I think, feel that they really should have done better. But, uh, yeah, Frank said, you know, everyone's got their teams um, and he's got Chelsea and even a little bit of City in his heart, but he Mm. said, you know, he'd love to see Leicester win and I think that, like you said, that's very much echoed around the league. It's just a very, very strange season, all told. Mm. Well, Ranieri has seen these unexpected successes happen before in terms of winning leagues when he was managing in La Liga at the same time that Deportivo uh, won the league there in 99-2000. So perhaps he's using that as a bit of a framework. Who knows? And up on our website at the moment, uh, you can catch an article about the Cambridge side of the early 90s. This is a team who very nearly landed in the inaugural season of the Premier League when in 91-92 they were at the top of then League Two for quite a substantial amount of the season until mid-April when it all came collapsing down. But there's some great stuff there from Tom Simmons who um, writes an article on our website about that. You can check that out at offsiderulepodcast.com. Don't forget as well to check out our Twitter account at offsiderulepod and our Facebook to the Offside Rule on Facebook for feature articles that we've been running throughout the week and also all the latest news from the Offside Rule. I'm Gary Neville and you're listening to The Offside Rule. Sarah, I'm sat here right now with your book in front of me, kicking off how women in sport are changing the game. Is it mainly women who've been reading it or have you had some good feedback from guys as well? Because you've got a girl on the front and I think a lot of male journalists who we speak to, a lot of male broadcasters are really supportive of women in terms of pushing us forward. But your everyday guy on the street, how's he responded to the book? I've actually had a lot of men reading the book, um, which is pleased me because I wanted it to be read by as many people as possible obviously Mm. but men as much as women so even at the book launch I had a lot of guys there who bought the book a lot of my colleagues who are pretty much all male (laughs) are reading the book my husband's reading the book which is obviously very nice Nice. so yeah I've had really good feedback and a a lot of guys have commented on on how it's told them stories you know they've heard about women they've never heard about before um, and it's kind of opened their eyes to a few issues as well Mm. which is obviously what you want from a book like this so um, yeah it's been great. Keeping with the football theme, you've you've got a chapter actually where you, you've actually spoken and worked with Kelly Smith and she's given you a lot of insight from her point of view. I'm just wondering whether you've spotted as a journalist, and this is for this book, but also just in your day job as well for Sport Magazine, any difference now that the WSL has had a bit more of a push, it's had more terrestrial television given to it, more airtime. Are you spotting a difference when you're trying to speak to the players now? Because we all knew that the access was fantastic, but there seems to be a few more agents popping up. And I wondered whether you had any insight. Yes, definitely has been a change in probably, I'd say, the last six months. There's a lot more brands getting involved, which is absolutely brilliant. And I'm thrilled that brands are now seeing the value in women's football but it does make access a little bit more tricky. I had to do one interview with a player. I had to re- supply questions beforehand. It was for, it was for a fun Q&A. How do you drink your tea? What's your favourite <laughs> biscuit kind of thing? So I didn't really feel it was necessary, but I complied. 
Um, and then about 20 minutes before the interview was supposed to happen, they said, oh, by the way, can we have copy approval? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm, I really don't think it's necessary for this kind of interview. You know, things like that are definitely changed from, you know, a year ago. I mean, of course, we want to see our footballers treated as equally as possible. But I think the realists in us know that's not going to happen for a very long time. There is a lot of me that's certainly backing the campaign over in America at the moment from a few of the players in the in the US team because they actually make more money than the men's team. They have a bigger audience than the men's team. I know that's unique to America and not the rest of the world. But in terms of women's football, they do deserve probably more than what the men get. The reason I'm bringing this up for here is that shift and, and being a journalist, we're all journalists and we're all wanting to get access, is just to make sure that the WSL doesn't clamp down too much because the accessibility is the one thing that can mm. sell it. It's the one thing that can get it column inches. I'm sure you would agree it's the one thing that can get it in your book, mm. that can get it in your magazine. And and let's face it, Kelly Smith, who you've got in your book, is the biggest name out there. She is the ultimate England striker ever. So if you've got the access to her, I'm just a bit fearful and I'm, I'm raising that with you as someone who's obviously worked with it for a long time as well. Yeah, and you just reminded me, actually, uh, an interview request that I put in for the book with another England footballer, women's footballer, and I was asked if there was going to be a fee. I mean, we've never paid for interviews at sport. It's just not something that we do. And, and I was a little bit taken aback because I don't know if people think that you get paid a lot for writing a book, but generally you don't. So I said, I'm really sorry, you know, I, I can't pay a fee. And that, and that was the end of it. You know, I, I wanted to talk about her story in the book and, and it didn't happen. That really, you know, mm. surprised me. And I just hope that that isn't the way it's going. Do you think it's difficult territory, though? Because obviously men don't expect a fee because we know that they get paid enough already. And for women, it's a little bit different. They don't necessarily, some of them do, but they don't necessarily get paid enough already. But you've got barriers that you're already trying to break down Mm -hmm. and you're putting new ones up. You've just got to flood the market. You've got to try and get as much exposure as you can and you need to get as many people in the grounds as you can. And when it's at the dizzying heights of getting 10, 15,000 through the gates, then change your tack. But don't do it now. Mm. All of us are used to shocking stories, whether it's our own experiences, whether it's hearing that something's happened to a fellow journalist friend or an athlete. We can kind of tune into that. And sometimes, most of the time, it doesn't surprise us any longer. And that's a horrible thing to say, but it doesn't. It takes a lot to surprise me now. Genuinely, what's the moment in the book, whether it's in or out of the book, what in your process, Sarah, genuinely made you go, oh, my God? Well, there was a lot when I was writing the book that frustrated me and that I thought, oh, my God, how is this still happening? And probably the most annoying or depressing one wasn't in football, it was actually in cycling, because a lot of people consider British cycling to be one of the better governing bodies, and and I do as well. So it really saddened me when I found out that at the Junior British Road Championships, they are giving the boys more prize money than the girls. And I just think at that age, Mm. what is that saying to those young Mm. girls? You know, you're never going to be as good as the boy riders, so why even bother? I think they justify it by saying that the boys ride further, but according to most of the coaches, the girls could ride the same distance as the boys, but they're not allowed to. Yeah. Well, that brings in the very famous debate recently that Novak Djokovic caused with tennis. The debate there was, well, in tennis, in men's tennis, they play five sets and in women's tennis, they only play three. But are the women given the opportunity to play to five? And the other point to make is that it's only in the Grand Slams. I still, to this day, think that people go to Wimbledon and queue up outside to go and watch the tennis. Mm. And I think at the Grand Grand Slams, it should be equal because the gate is equal and that's how it's split up. And the rest of the tours, the WTA, is not paid anywhere near what the men's tours paid. So I just thought it was an argument that wasn't very well put across. 
you know, outside of the Grand Slams, the difference is still there. If you look at the average annual earnings between the top male players and the top female players, it's it's really big because, like you say, at the, at the WTA tournaments, they don't earn nearly as much. And also outside of the Slams, they're playing the same number of sets. They're both playing three sets. So, you know, there, there is still a difference for everyone who's saying equal pay. You know, it's not the rule. It's the exception four times a year. So you just have to praise the tennis authorities for trying at least to do what a lot of other sports haven't and, and make it as equal as they can. Can I ask, coming to football, who's been your favourite football interview and, and why? And I suppose we'll also counter that with perhaps the, the least impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed interviewing Cesc Fabregas way back before he was made captain at Arsenal. I can't remember what year it was now. He was a young guy. He was very articulate, very honest, very chatty. I thought he was great, you know, for a young player to be able to talk like that, you just don't get that much. And I suppose the most difficult, <laughs> actually, on the flip side of that, is probably Jack Wilshere. Mm. Um, I found him quite difficult to mm. get to open up. Mm. Um, he seemed to give his answers a lot of thought, but then there wasn't much coming back. But he was quite young, so he has got better. And to preface that, I mean, the first time I interviewed Andy Murray, he was similar and that was like 2007. And now he's the best interview you'll get in sport. Well, talking about um, people who open up easily, perhaps a bit of drama in interviews, Ranieri created his own little sob story, didn't he, at the weekend by having a little cry after his side's win. Really endearing moment, actually. And I think when we talk about, when I mentioned earlier about father figures in football, you know, he really cares. So let's draw on that as inspiration and uh, an example or two each, please, ladies, of when managers or chairmen have had to reach for their hanky. Lindsay. Last season, Dick Advocat, Sunderland. Not only did he cry, he cried twice. (laughs) It was Sunderland's Premier League survival at the final whistle. It was actually against Arsenal. Sorry, Sarah, to to, um, point this out. But it was a hard-fought draw against Arsenal that guaranteed them to be four points above relegation. They knew they were safe at the full-time whistle. There is Dick Advocat blubbing Mm. and you think well he might have got himself together a little bit because as we'll know or I can shed a little bit of light on the matter when the full-time whistle goes the players and the manager comes down the tunnel obviously if there's a celebration like that they're out on the pitch for a bit longer still they'll come down they have all their media duties they'll have things called flash interviews that go around the world then you'll have a mix zone and then at some point we're talking maybe 30 minutes on from this you will get the post-match press conference but fast forward all that time all the celebs on the pitch it probably was more like 45 minutes later and he was still crying in the post-match press conference but I um, I can understand that the emotions of the day got the better of him and I think it was getting caught up in all of that euphoria that made him stay maybe he might have wanted to rethink those tear ducts when they, when they let loose A couple of moments from me before we move on to you Sarah do you remember Rafa Benitez cried when he was announced as Real Madrid manager? Do you remember that? Because it meant so much to him obviously huge ties to the club yeah he wept a little tear when he was formally announced as the manager and my favourite tweet from Sid Lowe who as we know very popular journalist of Spanish football he tweeted people said it would end in tears didn't expect it to start in tears too (laughs) perhaps a sign there from Rafa Sarah as you answer yours maybe you can answer this as well Mourinho do we think that he did cry when David Moyes was appointed as Manchester United manager 
Yeah, I read those reports as well. I'm not convinced. <laughs> I mean, he is a very emotional man. Wasn't it that he cried as in boo-hoo, as in sarcastically, yeah, I cried, rather than he actually cried? That, that perhaps is more likely. Sarcasm <laughs> seems yeah. a more likely emotion from, from Mourinho. I've got two. So one, one is an example of happy tears and one is an example of sad tears, which we'll start with, which is very, very recent. So it's um, Aston Villa's chairman, Doug Ellis, Sir Doug Ellis, sorry, who apparently wept at Christmas time looking at his team and obviously knowing where they were heading and it's only gotten worse. And the other one, the, the happy tears, uh, were from York City chairman uh, Jason McGill, a, a solid northerner, <laughs> who, um, who wept when his team secured promotion from the conference to League Two after they'd spent eight years in the conference. So they were tears of absolute elation. Means a lot, doesn't it? Apparently Louis van Gaal has told his players that he cries almost every day. There's always something that touches me. I find that really hard to believe. <laughs> Sorry, Louis. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at OffsideRulePod and like our page on Facebook. Simply type in the Offside Rule We Get It. There's only one of us. Now, Rafa Benitez says his Newcastle players have an alarming, he used the word alarming, mental problem when it comes to away games. So, I need suggestions. We need to put answers on a postcard, send them up to Rafa. What on earth can the manager do to try and stop this hex? How do we get those players over their mental block? It could be, uh, and I'm looking at you for this one, Sarah, examples that maybe you've written about or heard about from other sports. Lindsay, I'm looking at you for this one. Just some ridiculous ideas. (laughs) (laughs) You're looking at me for the ridiculous. Why does that not surprise me? Okay, well, I'll start with some ridiculous. A colleague of mine interviewed Jamie Vardy recently and the interview was very early, 9am in the morning. He turns up two cans of Red Bull. He says, isn't it a bit early to be drinking two cans of Red Bull, Jamie? He went, it's working. <laughs> now, I think we would agree. So in a plug for a potential new new, new endorsement of sorts, maybe in the future, um, I would say Red Bull. Crates, Give them Red Bull. Crates, Crates. Crates. yeah. Um, so there are some really good examples from American sport uh, <laughs> oh, God, of teams that have been suffered from curses and done everything they can to try and overcome them. The biggest one's probably the New Orleans Saints in the NFL, who called in a voodoo priestess before a, <laughs> before a playoff game. Uh, so she went on the field with a boa constrictor around her neck, um, <laughs> nice. said her chance, and um, the team got their first ever postseason win. So Ooh. voodoo priestesses, I'm sure, are available in Newcastle. Well, I was sort of scouting around the internet, if I'm completely honest, having a little Google as to what on earth these players might want to do. And I came across a website, and Sarah, I know that you're a bit of a gym bunny, you love working out, and I came across a blog called Breaking Muscle. (laughs) A bit of advice from the chap who who was writing this particular blog was, you know, just start with 100 press-ups. I thought, oh, yeah, okay, great. Start with 100 press-ups. If you're finding it mentally tough, do 100 press-ups. Okay. Uh, Then he also offers us the pearl of wisdom that when the alarm goes off, you need to get upright ASAP. I don't know why I didn't say get up. He said, can you get upright ASAP? He also gave us the classic. It's not the size of the dog, but the size of the fight in the dog. You know that Poch in his halftime team talk, Spurs Man United just went, lads, it's United. That's all you need. That's the team talk. Three words, lads, it's United. Fair enough, Sarah. Oh, well, there's another one they could use, which is is turn to religion, <laughs> which you won't be surprised to hear also happened in America. Uh, the Chicago Cubs, the baseball team, who suffered with um, something called the curse of the billy goat, which started in 1945, and they are still suffering, so they've literally tried everything. But in 2008, they got a Greek Orthodox priest to spray holy water 
water again around the dugout. Bit of holy water on the road with you, spray it on the coach, spray it on the pitch, spray it, <laughs> spray it on the players before they go out. I think it could really help. I think we can learn something from rugby because Johnny Wilkinson has his famous pose. And that pose is because he was so good at kicking over and conversions. He had such an impressive rate and ratio for doing it that we can learn something from this. It's to do with the pose. So if you're not, if you're struggling in training with free kicks, adopt a new pose. Not only that, you'll get lots of money for the royalties for it as well. Patent it. It's funny that you say rugby because Gus Hiddink uses rugby in Chelsea's training session to help players toughen up mentally. Um, he also uses judo, by the way. Who knew that Gus Hiddink was a judo white belt? He did say something about it, didn't he, when Van Hal did his mimicking falling over in front of the referee a month or so ago. He actually referenced that he um, that he does judo. Well, he basically said when he arrived at Chelsea that he needed to give the players a little bit of rugby training. And he also uses handball as well and in the past has even used wrestling and um, Sarah anything else from you well I was just going to add to the wrestling with the the Spurs boxing which we've seen on Twitter quite a bit and to be honest I've been boxing for about three and a half years now and the techers are poor <laughs> I think it was Eric Dyer on the pads there's no hip rotation it's all arm punches it's just it's just awful you know I think if they want any lessons they need to come to me basically because they ain't getting anywhere throwing punches like that I like that some technical analysis from Sarah Shepherd. I think we're going to leave it there folks if that's okay if you want to buy a copy of Sarah's book it's a Available in most good bookstores, Sarah, and on Amazon too. Kicking off how women in sport are changing the game. Congratulations, because it's a great book. A really enjoyable read as well. Very interesting. We also uh, need to tell you that you can check out the very latest from the Offside Rule on our website, offsiderulepodcast.com. Uh, you can check us out on Audio Boom, where you'll be able to listen to us every Thursday. Uh, you can download us via iTunes. Do please follow our Twitter account, at Offside Rule Pod for the very latest. Sarah, thank you very much for getting involved in today's podcast. Have you enjoyed yourself? I've loved it actually yeah thanks for having me on and, and I appreciate the um the laughs over the last half an hour it's been great thanks very much guys see you later the offside rule we get it is brought to you by continental tires sports social podcast network